thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 144 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Dr. Dan Siegel. Dan is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Centre, also at UCLA. In today's show, we discuss interpersonal neurobiology, the wheel of awareness, the integrated brain, and so much more. Let's welcome Dan to the show. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to speaking with you today. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners and share them or share with them a little bit more about your background? Sure. Well, my name is Dan Siegel, and uh, I'm a psychiatrist and a writer who works in an area called interpersonal neurobiology, which is a big word, which just basically means what happened if you took all the fields of science and asked simple questions like, what is the mind? And what is a healthy mind, and then tried to figure out ways of taking all of that application and making it available to parents, to people in athletics, to people in schools, to people in governments, organizations, people who do meditation, all sorts of folks who can use these ideas to help improve their lives and strengthen their minds. I love that. So let's talk about the, I guess, a little bit more insight into your journey, like what made you explore this area, this interpersonal neurobiology? Well, what happened with me was I was trained, uh, you know, initially in biochemistry in college, then medicine. And when I was in medical school, it became clear that many of my teachers uh, did not focus on the mind. That is, if someone had a feeling or a story or something that was meaningful in their lives that was coming up because of an illness that was being diagnosed. My teachers wouldn't really address those mind sides of things. So I ended up stopping school for a while. I actually thought about being a dancer. And uh, after journeying through that whole world, ultimately decided to come back to medical school with this word I made up called mind sight, which is seeing the mind in yourself or seeing the mind in someone else for empathy. So insight, seeing the mind of yourself or empathy, seeing the mind of another are basically what mind sight is. And it helped me get through school. And ultimately, when I became a psychiatrist, it was a guiding light for how to understand what we might do to develop a healthy mind. And so that basically is how things started. And what's been so exciting about it is, you know, people from all walks of life, can draw on the exciting applications of this field in terms of saying, how do I make my mind stronger? How do I make my relationships stronger? How do I make my body stronger? How do I actually use my mind, my feelings, my thoughts, how I focus attention, what I do with awareness? How do I take those mental experiences, use them in a healthy way 
to actually make my brain more integrated, which means more coordinated and balanced in my life. So there's some exciting findings that uh, we can discuss that are very useful for everyday life. Yeah, share with us some of those insights and maybe some, some examples to help the, like I guess, explain this in context. Well, think about um, when you walk, a simple physical activity like walking. Walking requires that you differentiate your left leg from your right leg. So you lean forward on your left as you're putting weight there. And then at some point, you know, your right leg is going to swing forward and then take the weight off of your left leg, which will then, as you're leaning forward, ultimately get your left leg to start swinging. That requires making the left and right different from each other, but then linking them together in a walk or a run or a exercise you were doing, athletics, dancing, any kind of movement. We have to differentiate elements of the body and then link them. Well, the term you can use for that of differentiating, like left from right, and then linking in this coordinated and balanced way is called integration. And it turns out one of the major take-home messages from weaving all of these sciences together is that integration in your brain, in your head, that is differentiating the different parts and linking them, is the best predictor of health and happiness. And your brain and your head can be differentiated from what goes on inside your body as a whole, and that would be differentiating your body and the parts of the brain and then linking them, so that would be embodied integration that also is a pathway to well-being. And then if you study relationships, like how you get along with a friend or a spouse, how you get along with a child, basically healthy relationships are where we honor each other's differences and then promote compassionate, caring communication as a linkage. So you could say that integration in relationships, integration in your body, integration in your head is actually the basis of health. And that's one of the major take-home messages that you can learn the techniques of creating a more integrated life, which in many deep ways literally related to cellular function and cardiovascular function, as well as mental function and social function. These are all areas of our life that can be improved. Yeah, I love that. And I want to talk more about mindsight in a moment, but I just wanted to get your experience. Obviously, you've been in this field for some time now. Um, I wondered if your experience was that sort of cognitive disconnect around the importance of, of our mind and how we think and our emotional control. Like, do you see that being like forgotten about in the health space? And perhaps is that changing? Well, I do think, Steph, that there, that's a, a problem that's been there. I don't know how deeply changing it is for reasons I'll describe in just a moment. I hope it's changing and it ought to change and it would be beautiful if it was and it's probably changing in some small ways, uh, but in the bigger ways, I'm not sure. So let me, let me point out what I mean by that. If you just think that there's two perceptual capacities we have, one is a capacity to see the physical world, like to see a hand in front of your face if you wave your hand in front of you right now or when you're walking along a path you want to see what's in front of you along the trail we can just call that physical sight because you're using your eyes 
but you also use your ears or your taste, your touch, your smell to actually bring in the physical aspect of the world around you. And that's really important. Another kind of perceptual ability we have is this mindset ability to imagine, for example, what's going on inside another person's mind by the signals they send to you or in your own mind to actually feel, to sense your emotions, your your thoughts, your beliefs, your hopes, your dreams, your intentions, your longings, your desires, your visions for what the future can be. All of this is a part of your mind and you sense this, you become aware of it, you perceive it with mind sight. So mind sight and physical sight are actually quite different. So what's happening in the medical world, I'm a physician, sadly is dominant with physical sight. So people are learning so much about the physical aspects of the body, what you can do with physical tests, diagnostic tests, scans you do. But in the busyness that's happening there, what I've noticed when I teach at medical schools and other professional programs around the world is people are getting so bombarded with the amount of information they have to keep up with that the mind, the subjective experience of a feeling, let's say, or the story of your life is actually not often a focus of attention in clinical care. Instead, physical aspects of reality are now even more taking us over. And the evidence I have in support of that, sadly, is in the United States, at least, when you look at the numbers of medical trainees who are becoming burnt out and anxious, in 2011, it was about 44%. In 2015, so four years later, it went from 44% to 56%. So if we really were teaching these medical professionals to care for their minds, you expect the, the trend to go down instead of up. And that's what concerns me. The same is, not, is true also not just in human medicine, but in veterinarian medicine, where the suicide rate has increased dramatically. And so what we see, I think, is a world filled with internet connections on the physical side, but very little on the internal side that practices like you know meditation or getting involved in yoga or things like that are invitations to become more present with your mental life that we need to encourage more. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure we'll explore those topics as well. The example I like that you provide online about, I guess, how to explain mindset is the I am sad versus the I feel sad. So could you talk about the difference in language and what impact that has on our health? Yeah. So, you know, your state of mind, what some people call a mindset, um, is something that can be altered with this thing we're calling mind sight. So in the example you're giving, let's say your state of mind says, you know, I am depressed. The way we understand linguistics is that these are not just words. This is the way a mental process like a thought, I am depressed, takes that statement literally that the wholeness of who I am is a depressed person. I'm hopeless. I'm filled with despair. And if you just are making a statement that includes the totality of who you are, it has a quality of being persistent. It's pervasive. It's personal. It is a prison for you. This is in contrast when you've differentiated the experience of being aware 
from the experience of what you're aware of, which we do in this practice called the wheel of awareness, then you're actually given the gift of being able to say something like, there is a depressed feeling I am experiencing right now. And what that simple change in mindset, this frame of mind does, it uses mind sight to see the mind and say, you know something, I am bigger than a feeling. In this wheel of awareness practice, we basically say there's a feeling on the rim. Those are the knowns of life. But the awareness of it is in the hub. So you're able to say from the hub, gosh, on the rim, I'm noticing a depressed, sad, hopeless feeling as one point in the rim. But from the expansiveness of my hub, I know there are many other feelings. I could feel joy. I could feel scared. I could feel angry. I could feel all sorts of things. I notice there is a depressed feeling out there on the rim. That is profoundly empowering. It's basically how you integrate consciousness. You're differentiating the knowns on the rim from each other and from the experience of knowing, which is in the hub. And then you're really integrating consciousness, which liberates your mind from the prison that these statements, I am this or I am that, can create for us. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I'm sure we can use it in many other examples as to the language that we probably use habitually without really appreciating the impact that it has. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, um, it's actually pretty profound and really directly teachable. And it's, for anyone listening, it's something very simple you can practice sometimes uh, an in-depth practice like the wheel is helpful as an idea, and sometimes it's helpful as a practice. And I'll, I can give you one example. You know, there was a even a five-year-old boy who was transferred from one school to the other because he got in a fight with a kid at his first school. And at the second school, the teacher was teaching this wheel of awareness not as a reflective practice but as an idea. And when little Billy learned this, after a couple of days, he came to his teacher and said, Mrs. Smith, she wrote me an email about this. Mrs. Smith, you know, I need you to give me a break because I'm on the yard and I'm lost on my rim. I'm about to punch Joey because he took my blocks. I don't want to punch him. I need to get back to my hub. Yeah. It's so really please good give amount. me a break. Mm. Yeah. So it's empowering. You know, this is it's simple, but incredibly powerful. Yeah. So how does that actually strengthen the mind? Well, the mind can be seen as an emergent self-organizing, and then we can talk about what that means, embodied relational process that regulates energy and information flow. And that's a lot of work just to say that it's a regulatory process. So for little Billy, the idea of the wheel and differentiating the knowing of the hub from the knowns on the rim allowed him to integrate his experience, literally He's on the yard. A kid takes his blocks. He's been raised in a home and in a neighborhood where beating someone up if they do something to violate what you think is right means you should what what you should do is hit them. So from the hub, he's given a choice. And before he had no choice, he was just on automatic pilot. And in the brain, we know that the way this choice is created is. The circuits that involve a number of regions, but including the region just behind your forehead, the prefrontal cortex, when these are able to act like a buffer to hold 
awareness of the impulse. I'm going to hit Joey. He took my block. When it's placed in this buffer, rather than just it being like a knee-jerk reflex where you just automatically hit the other kid, it's held in awareness. He's able to say, oh, I can feel my arm about to punch this kid. You know, I think choosing to hit him is probably not a good idea. And actually, in this pause, I have another option on what to do. So it's this powerful pause we can teach people how to create. Yeah, and I feel like this is something I teach quite similarly to my clients when it comes to, let's say it's a a nighttime snacking habit. So could Mm -hmm. you talk about maybe this example, this wheel of awareness in relation to food choices? Oh, absolutely. I can even give you my own examples, you know, Mm. from that. But when you go to the hub of your wheel, you're actually able to feel the impulse to, you know, eat in my particular case, let's say cookies. You know, I love cookies Uh, and I'm gluten free. Right. So I was teaching somewhere and the hosts were so sweet. They were so nice. They got me like five packages of gluten free cookies. Now, I don't do well with sugar. I didn't want to eat them. And so I gave myself the opportunity to have one. And then I wrapped up the whole package and took it outside of the room from the hub of my mind, even though on the rim it was, oh, you could eat five or six or seven or whatever because you love cookies and this one's gluten free. You hardly ever get to eat it. But in the end, you know, the overall hub decision was, okay, I'm going to eat one and that's fine. You have the taste. And as you know, the best taste you ever have is the first one or two bites. Mm -hmm. And that's it. You don't need 20 bites, one or two bites. So giving myself that much allowed me to have the joy of the crunch of the cookie, the taste of the cookie, and then knowing that I didn't need to go further allowed me to take an action. So it helped. A, A second thing that people can do from this hub is, You know, it's a very simple practice. You probably teach all the people you work with, you know, when you use a knife and fork and spoon, you take a a fork full of food, you put the fork down and you taste the food rather than what many of the patients I work with and even myself sometimes, you know, keep on shoveling the food into your mouth where you don't taste it because as you know, you know, that way of being with the food as you're tasting it allows you, first of all, to appreciate it more. It allows you to actually be present for the experience of eating. And the timing of when you feel full um, and versus, you know, when you're satiated, those are, there's, a, there's a, a very different timing in the onset of when you finally say, that was satisfying, now I'm done, versus when your stomach feels like it can't take anymore. So if you keep on shoving forkfuls of food into your mouth, you're going to actually fill your stomach up to a size that's so far beyond when the metabolism, the taking of that food would start secreting the substances that you need to say, hey, I think I'm full now. Not that my stomach is completely filled, but that I am satisfied now. So eating more slowly, more mindfully has these profound benefits. Yes. So eating is on the rim and then the putting the knife and the fork down is the hub 
Exactly. You know, and so you're saying there's a chew, 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 and you're really saying I'm appreciating this food. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely amazing to me how many of us, and I, I, I love being social, but when we're in a social setting and you watch people eat, let's say they're talking to each other, they're not really tasting the food. And often their fork is never put down. They put it in their mouth, they put it another bite in their mouth, they put it and they're talking and eating and talking and eating. And, and so people are not allowing their body to have the experience of tasting the food, of letting the body really metabolize the food. So it says, hey, you've eaten enough. Uh, and, and a third thing actually is, I don't know how this is for the people you work with, but I, I know there's often a psychological thing like, is this enough? Have I had enough? I don't want to be inadequate in how much I'm taking in. So people will err on the side of eating more than they really need to physiologically for psychological reasons, that they feel like I have to take care of my needs and not be left vulnerable and needy, you know. So that's another layer that the hub allows you to be aware of. You go, oh, I see. I'm worried about this being insufficient. So now I'm just piling things into my stomach. Yeah, and it's also a time when I think our past behaviors creep in. Like I see it when we go out for dinner with a group and let's say it's shared plates. Mm-hmm. It's the people that like dive in and rush to get the food on their plate and then basically inhale their food, I often wonder if they're from a family where there was either lots of people to feed or something that they were told either they had to you know, finish their plate before they could leave the table. Like These sorts of ingrained behaviours I think we can definitely carry through adulthood if we're not aware as to where they started. Well, Steph, that's totally right. And, you know, for me as an attachment researcher who studies parent-child relationships and also as a therapist, what I've noticed is looking deeply at how the really early and important experience of being a young child where you have needs those needs can be for love and affection and connection and being seen that's all beautiful and then very parallel to that meaning they're happening at the same time is you know you have a very vulnerable little body your body needs food your caregivers are the source of that food Mm. and so you know there's an overlap between the emotional need for connection and the physiological need for nutrition. And then what happens is those two very deep, early, they're primary in our lives of emotional connection and physiological satisfaction get overlapped. And so then what you see, just like you're saying, and you know, it can be in a buffet situation, you know, where it's all you can eat, or, you know, people just take huge amounts of food, or it's in the setting where people are sharing food, and they're afraid they're not going to get enough. And sadly, I think this is sometimes made more intense with social media, the way it is, where there's always this kind of infinite feelings, what I call this, it's infinite on the internet, you never feel like you're done. Uh, Social media, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, maybe often, you know, displays images of perfection that make you feel like, oh my God, that's not my life. So you feel insufficient that way. And then when it comes to food, you know, you go, wow, um, I just 
and here's, this is just, I'm going to say this in a very simple way, but I feel I need to eat. Now that phrase, I feel I need to eat. If you deconstruct it, you realize eating is more than the physiological necessity for nutrition. It becomes a symbol of, I need this deep primary emotional connection to feel satisfied. So I feel I need to, and there's the need. Yes, as I'm aware of it, it's a need. This isn't like a want, this is a need. It's a real deep primary need. Yeah, it is, but it's not what you think it is. It's something else. And then I feel, you're saying, well, I'm aware of it. So it almost has a feeling like, well, I'm taking care of myself when people overeat. And so giving them a way of really differentiating physiological needs from emotional and social needs is crucial, I find, therapeutically for people then just to become awake and say, I see, I need to call a friend and go for a walk with a friend because I'm feeling kind of lonely rather than eat you know, two or three times as much as I really should be eating here. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to explain things. And one, I think we can all recall in those times of that emotional need. So I wanted to explore the possible mechanisms that underlie the wheel of awareness. And I feel this links us back to what you mentioned earlier in regards to the prefrontal cortex. Could you dive in there for us, please, and explain more about that and the other mechanisms that are involved? Well, you know, um, the wheel of awareness is a very um, simple practice that we have people stream from our website, and we've had about a million people stream it now. And I've done it systematically, including down under in Australia, you know, with um, uh, that was part of the study with 10,000 people. And so we have some really consistent and fascinating reports from people who do it. And basically, as I described it earlier, it's the notion that if you're going to integrate consciousness, you want to differentiate and link. That's what integration is. Consciousness is the experience of knowing, and it also has the knowns. So if you put on the rim the knowns of our first five senses, like what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, then if you go to the second of four segments of the rim, that would be the interior of the body, what your muscles feel like, your bones, your organs. Then you move the spoke of attention. It's a metaphoric spoke of attention over to the third of four segments. And this is your mental life, like feelings and memories and thoughts and things like that. And then you can move over to a fourth segment of the rim, which is your sense of connection to other people, to nature, things like that, your relational sense. We even have a more advanced step where you bend the spoke around straight into the hub of knowing of awareness. Now, when people do this, what's really quite striking is things start to change in their life when they practice it regularly, such as anxiety being reduced. So if they're anxiously eating, it becomes much easier to not overeat because now their anxiety is decreasing. Things about intrusive memories from traumatic events become easier to handle. It can be a little touchy in certain ways, but ultimately they become easier to handle. If your mood is down in the dumps, it can aliven the mood. Those are fascinating findings that are consistent with basically 
a broader set of research on something called mindfulness, which includes yoga, tai chi, qigong, centering prayer, mindfulness meditation, which has these three components that turn out just fortunately by coincidence are embedded in the wheel practice. And those components are training the focused attention on a single thing. So like what you hear or what you smell or something like that. In the first two segments of the rim, it's focused attention. The second pillar is called open awareness. And that's what you experience on the third segment of the rim when you're opening up to any kind of mental experiences like feelings, thoughts, memories, things like that. And then even when you bend the spoke around, that's open awareness. And then the fourth segment of the rim is the third pillar of mindfulness meditation that's been proven to do all sorts of things I'll mention in a moment. But what that does is it is about kind intention. You're training the capacity for caring and kindness towards one's inner life and towards other people as well. So we'll just call that kind intention. When you do those three things, in terms of mechanisms you're asking about, Steph, the research is very, very clear. Number one, when you do these three pillars of training, so focused attention, open awareness, kind intention, you integrate the brain. And if you want to talk about the parts of the brain, I'm happy to do that, but let's just leave it at that general statement. A more integrated brain is a more regulated brain. So you can balance your attention, your emotions, your thinking, your, your self-understanding, your uh, emotional life, your morality, even all these things are emerging from an integrated brain. The second thing that research has shown it does that is kind of mind boggling, in other words, using the mind to train these three things leads to improvement in cardiovascular aspects of your health. So cholesterol levels go down, blood pressure is improved, the way the heart is integrated with the head is improved. These are all helpful to cardiovascular functioning. That's number two. Number three is your immune system is improved. Number four, the level of an enzyme called telomerase, which is an enzyme that repairs the ends of your chromosomes, kind of like the caps on a shoelace. You know, anti-aging. It's, and it's an anti-aging thing. That's right. And so what you do with your mind in terms of these three pillars increases and optimizes telomerase levels. So it repairs and maintains the ends of your chromosomes so your cells are healthier. And the fifth thing, which is kind of mind-boggling too, is that what you do with your mind in terms of developing basically presence, uh, this hub of the wheel, uh, actually changes the regulators on top of your genes. They're called epi, that's on top of genetic, epigenetic on top of genes, regulators that help to reduce inflammation. So, you know, if I were hearing this from, you know, someone 20 years ago, I'd say, oh, wishful thinking. Now we actually have the scientific studies published in some of the most rigorous peer-reviewed journals that show what you do with your mind in terms of integrating your mind, really, leads to these cellular changes, these molecular changes in the body, as well as, of course, leading to a feeling of well-being, a feeling of increased empathy, of connection to others, a feeling of wholeness. And it's kind of an amazing moment where people should learn that if you want to actually improve the health of your body, the health of your relationships and the health of your mind, 
then doing a practice like this is kind of like brushing your teeth mm. to improve the health of your teeth. It's dental hygiene. This is life hygiene, really. You know, it improves every aspect of your life. And, you know, it takes practice. So just like it takes time to brush your teeth, these are practices that need to be done. But they improve all these ways. And probably the way it's happening is you're integrating energy and information flow is what I write about in the book called Mind or this new book called Aware where I dive deeply into the wheel, I think it's where you're learning to focus attention in an integrated way, which is basically having energy and information stream through your life. It's your head brain for sure, but also your whole body in an integrated way that helps your relationships and helps your body function optimally. Yeah, it's phenomenal, like mind-boggling, as you say. So you mentioned (laughs) cardiovascular protection, immune support, um, telomerase, I guess, production and uh, telomerase levels uh, that, that really repairs the telomeres, the ends of the chromosomes. Telomerase is the enzyme, and then the epigenetic uh, decrease in inflammation, epigenetic regulation to decrease inflammation. Yeah, it's wow. amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is very powerful, and I think you're right when you use the analogy of brushing your teeth. You know, we don't wake up. We're not born with the habit of brushing our teeth after breakfast or every night before bed, but it becomes ingrained in us through habit. So clearly we can apply the same thing to our mind training or our exercising of the mind. Exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So how and, does, go on. Yeah. No, no, I mean, it's exactly that, you know, there was a time when no one brushed their teeth and their teeth got decayed, you know, and, and then we just got into the habit because a lot of people say, well, I don't have time to do this. Well, actually you don't have time not to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, the amount of time you're going to be suffering, uh, if you don't do practice like this, uh, will way outdo, you know, any time when you were, uh, thinking it would, Oh, I can't do my 12 minutes a day. Even if you think about a daily dozen, that's probably about a minimum you could do. That's the thing to try, you know? Yeah. And what's the quote from, I think it's a, a quote from Buddha about um, that you should meditate for 10 minutes a day, except if you don't have time. Yeah. Or except if you're too busy. And if you're too busy, you should meditate for an hour a day. Something along those lines. Well, an hour a day, say, say, say it again. What, what did you read? It's something along the lines of if that everyone should meditate for 10 minutes a day, except if you are too busy when you should meditate for an hour a day. I see. So, well, you know, it's a really interesting, interesting statement because, and part of this has to do with really our relationships with each other. If someone were to tell me, you better do this amount, you know, an hour a day, or it's a waste of your time. And I just couldn't do the hour a day. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do fi- I wouldn't do 50 minutes. And my colleagues who are, you know, like the main researchers in this field, I'll ask them about this privately because we're all everyone, they're always afraid to put a number out there. And what I've heard is that the minimum that the researchers have found that really shows consistent improvement is 12 minutes a day, a dozen minutes a day. And on the other hand, you know, of course, some say, well, just do four hours a day, three hours a day. Well, here's, here's the thing about it. 
we really want to encourage people to find something that fits into their life to do internal reflection. I'll give you an example. We don't even know, because the research just hasn't been done yet. Let's say it's 20 minutes a day minimum. Like, can you do 10 and 10, or does it have to be 20 in sequence? Um, Some people say you should take a week off, you know, a year and do a, a retreat where you're immersing in that. Well, that's great. But we need to get people started, you know, where, yeah, you brush your teeth and then regularly you get your teeth clean. So there may be a weekend you want to spend of doing a reflection. But I'd rather see people brushing their teeth every day, even if they can't go to a dental hygienist, you know, get special cleaning. I'd rather people see people start that and get motivated to do some more intense things. And so I would, you know, I find that when people start doing a dozen a day, they say, you know something, this feels good. I'm going to go to the wheel, which is 24 minutes a day. And people like that. Now, on the other hand, I did a workshop this weekend. We did the 24 minute wheel practice. Everybody loved it. But then on the last day, they said, oh, we want to do it again. We want to do it again. So I said, okay, I'm going to try the fastest wheel you've ever experienced. So I did this. We didn't have much time because the workshop was closing. So I did this wheel. And I'm telling you, about five people spontaneously just raised their hand and said, I'm doing that fast one every day. You know, it's eight minutes. I said, I'm doing the eight minute version. I said, wow. Okay. They said, I even got into a deeper place with that. So maybe you need to start with a, a, a like a 24 minute thing and just get yourself used to it. You, you know, it isn't really so much about the method. It's really about what you can call presence. It's developing the ability to drop into presence, to be with your food, to be with your friends, to be with yourself. Um, and you can do this for a minute here, a minute there. And as one of my beautiful colleagues, John O'Donoghue, who passed away about 10 years ago, said, you know, um, it's really not about the method. It's really about just being present, whatever the methodology you use to get there. And I, I think John was really, really onto something. Yes, and don't you think it's about integrating it into your everyday life? Like 12 minutes isn't going to be very helpful if you then can't apply that to to your eating habits or to a stressful situation or to your relationships. Yeah, well, exactly. And here's, let's say you do the practice. Let's say you go to my website, you do the wheel, you like the 24-minute one, but you don't have 24 minutes, and then you do the, we have a 12-minute one, you can do that, you can do the 8-minute one, and you just get used to doing it. Now you're at dinner somewhere. You're with some friends and you're sharing plates. Well, you go to your hub because now you've trained yourself to do that. And you go, I can feel an impulse on my rim to reach out and take like three spoonfuls of that chicken dish or, you know, that eggplant. But you know something? I'm going to start with one spoonful Mm -hmm. because there's so many different dishes And, you know, something, what's the worst that happens is we run out of food or, you know, I choose a different dish. I'm going to go with one spoonful because I like, I want to try things. So I'll do one spoonful of this, that, one spoonful of this. And I choose that from the hub of my wheel that I got to because I'm practicing when I'm not in front of food. But now I'm accessing the hub and it changes my complete relationship with food, even with friends. I mean, I just saw someone this morning and, you know, you should have heard her say, look, with the wheel of awareness, I'm able to go to people with difficult conversations. I drop into my hub and I speak to them from that place. 
So even though they may be disappointed in what I'm saying or frustrated or angry, I actually have the spaciousness of the hub to just allow them to feel whatever they're feeling. She's basically learned to be present. And instead of being reactive, which she used to be, she's just there and receptive. And then how her friends and colleagues work with her with this new receptive way is transformational. It's a completely different pattern. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's definitely important to recognize how you can then take the practice into your daily life. There's obviously a lot of information on your website um, and I believe you've got a new book out on this exact topic. Yeah, well, I have a couple of books. The book that's coming out is called Yes Brain. You've got more than a couple. It, <laughs> uh, yeah. The Yes Brain is a book that teaches you how to help yourself and your kids or adolescents develop a kind of positive approach to life to maintain their curiosity, their courage, their resilience. And so that's a book. There's also a book called Mind, uh, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human that you know gets to your earlier question, Steph, about what's the mechanism beneath all this. And then the new book I'm writing, which will come out in a little while, is called Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. Amazing. You're a busy man, but I've loved our conversation today. Could you just direct our listeners to where um, they can find out more about you? Sure. Come join us and get connected to whatever works for you and your lifestyle and what your needs are at drdansiegel.com, which is D-R-D-A-N. S-I-E-G-E-L dot com. Amazing. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. I'm sure all of our listeners um, had lots of light bulb moments and hopefully they can start to practice the wheel of awareness and apply that to their everyday life. Well, thanks, Steph, and I hope you will keep in touch. And I hope if you do come to our website, email us and let us know how the experience of integrating your mind goes as you move along your journey. Amazing. Will do. Thank you again. Thanks, Steph. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.